Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Lisa Fithian. Lisa Fithian has just published a terrific guide to direct action and strategic civil disobedience as the most radical and rapid means to social change. It is called Shut It Down, Stories from a Fierce, Loving Resistance. Fithian has been described by Mother Jones magazine as, quote, the nation's best-known protest consultant. She has supported countless movements, including the Battle of Seattle in 1999, rebuilding and defending communities following Hurricane Katrina, Occupy Wall Street, the uprisings at Standy Rock and at Ferguson. The website for Lisa's new book, which I strongly advise getting, is Shut It Down Now. Lisa Fithian, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you so much, David. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you for everything you've been doing all these years and for writing about it so well in this book, which is part memoir and part uh, guide to how to do it. How do you get into this line of work? How do you become a protest consultant? It's so funny. I don't actually really adopt that label of consultant, even though people, you know, it, it does work. I mean, part of it is just it's been my life service. And I have been doing it for so long. I've just learned a lot of things here and there from doing strategy to implementing actions to organizing. And so, you know, a lot of that has just been, you know, moving from learning myself to sharing what I have learned along the way. You know, this is hard work with social change. And so we have to do everything we can to make it as easy as possible. And sharing what we've learned is one way to do that. And and so how did you get started? I mean, presumably there were not big billboards advertising for this line of work. There were no degrees in it. Uh, How do you get get started? Yeah, because I don't come from a political family. So it wasn't part of what I'd come out of. But I did have two lessons when I was in high school. One was that there was injustice, and two, that people working together could make a difference. I mean, our school budget was was, uh, cut, and we organized, re-round to end that austerity budget and, you know, bring back the student programs. I watched the power of the media when I did an underground newspaper about problems at the school and saw things start to change. Um, I then, you know, I, I started to get, you know, some people noticed I had some potential. I did get some training around organizing which led me to help do a student walkout when I was in high school. Um, and it was amazing to watch what happens when you turn hundreds of people walk out of a school. So I had early lessons. When I went to college, I kept organizing, um, you know, became president of the student government in college and, and high school. So I was sort of working within, you know, the system. But when I was at college, Addie Hoffman came to speak, who was, you know, a well-known 60s radical, founder of the Yippie Party. And he was doing a community organizing internship that summer. So I immediately applied. I'm like, I want to go. And he wrote me back, A-plus, come on up. And while that program didn't happen, I had graduated college and I drove up anyway. And I spent the summer working with him um, on what, you know, was another round of this major political fight to retool the St. Lawrence Seaway. And I just had a chance to watch and learn about strategy and creative tactics and and organizing to, you know, on this fight, the, the winter navigation is what it was called. We got the uh, eight Great Lakes governors, the entire New York State delegation, the government of Canada, like all coming out basically saying we don't want this project, and we were able to have it removed from an omnibus uh, waterworks bill, the $2 billion project. And that is not an easy feat, 
And so, again, I was learning the power of organizing um, to really to make things change for the better. So it's like it was early lessons, David, and then I was hooked. And I have never stopped ever since. It, it seems you had some early successes as well. You had failures as well, but you saw the power there. Um, I think you had a had an early success uh, going after Michael Dukakis, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, absolutely. Um, and that is also another thing I think I appreciate you raising that is that whether it's by luck or fortune or just good organizing, I've seen I have seen a lot of successes over the years and. A friend of mine was saying to me the other day, reminding me of this story where I said to him once, I was like, well, I win a lot, you know, and part of that is is getting the right ingredients together. So the work on Michael Dukakis was in the era of the U.S. wars in Central America when they were wanting to send the National Guard down to the region. And so there was organizing efforts. You know, I think the governor of Maine was first, but we put this pressure campaign on the governor of Massachusetts and got him to publicly commit to refuse to send the Massachusetts National Guard uh, to Central America to continue to wage the U.S. war. So, you know, that that was a really important victory, but in the grander scheme of some things, it also feels like it was like a smaller campaign. And so, you know, I, I guess on, on many different levels, from, you know, getting a school budget passed to actually changing national policy or debate, you know, I've seen the same principles play out to great effect. Another uh, early episode in the book is shutting down the CIA headquarters, uh, which you you suggest uh, may have been the first and only time thus far that people have shut down the CIA headquarters, uh, and and that some success came out of the movement that that was a part of. Can you can you describe what you did and and what happened? Sure, um, that was a part of a movement that was called the Pledge of Resistance. And it was a, it, the Pledge of Resistance was essentially an emergency response campaign of people who were willing to um, put their bodies on the line and risk arrest to prevent an invasion. But it was a network that, you know, put, was across the country. It, it sort of reminded me of Occupy in that it spread so quickly in so many cities across the country, but was connected to a national strategy table that helped us understand key targets and key legislation and times to take action. And there was a big mobilization uh, um, in April of 1987. And, you know, like many national mobilizations, there was an agreement to embrace nonviolent civil disobedience as like one of the days of action. And so, you know, we were trying to decide what to do, and it just became clear that so much of uh, the effect of our movement was that the administration kept driving the war he was waging underground and created this counterinsurgency war that was backed by the CIA. And so the CIA became the obvious target for us, in my opinion. And it was also pretty bold. And we need to take bold action. So over a thousand people came together. Um, We trained people, uh, hundreds and hundreds of people. We organized them into affinity groups, and many already came. And that was actually one of my early lessons in that movement looking at this model of direct action where people self-organized into affinity groups who would then come together in a spokes council where one member of each affinity group basically came to the center and formed a circle, and they were able to discuss and coordinate the larger plans of action. And it was a powerful model that worked and that I've seen used 
over many movements that are involved in nonviolent direct action, and it's a model that I continue to advocate for today. And I advocate for it not only because it works, it also offers an alternative to sort of the dominant culture and systems where people are voting or are told what to do by somebody that has greater authority or a position in an organization. And so it's just a, it's an alternative model that's quite effective. And it really helps people have a sense of their own power, and it helps them involve, uh, you know, engage in what we would call direct democracy, making decisions about what is going to affect your body and your life. So powerful model, powerful culture, effective. And so we went to the CIA, uh, you know, a thousand or more. Those affinity groups chose which entrance to the CIA they were going to blockade. There were three main entrances. They divided up into clusters. So we had hundreds of people going to each of the entrances who were prepared to link up and sit down and block them. And we did shut it down. And, um, you know, we paralyzed traffic across Northern Virginia. It was a national news story on the front page of, like, every major media outlet. Um, It was an opportunity for the whistleblowers of the day, including Dan Ellsberg, to come out and speak about how the governments lie and hide information. And, um, you know, uh, you know, these, the power of this work is not just in, you know, changing the narrative, getting the media, getting these institutions to work differently, but it's in what happens in individual lives. And so for people that did that, I, I have people to this day that come to me and say, I was at that action and it like changed the way I did things. And that for me is where I keep getting inspired to do it because every time we as individuals wake up, be willing to engage the world differently and to take action from a place of conscience. That's how I feel like we we build these movements that can change the world. We're speaking with Lisa Fithian. Uh, Her new book is called Shut It Down, Stories from a Fierce Loving Resistance. Uh, Lisa, through all the the successes and and failures and uh, learning lessons uh, in this wonderful book, uh, it, it seems a lot of times that uh, that you think something could have succeeded more if organizations had been willing to engage more in direct action. Do you, do you think people could accomplish much more than they do if we used direct nonviolent action uh, more uh, rather than, than other approaches? There's no question that I believe that, David. And I think that... One of the pieces on that also, and I talk about this in the book a lot, you know, some of my learnings from my years in the streets, but also my learnings from understandings of what what some people might call complexity science, There's the study of organic living systems. That yes, nonviolent direct action, yes, civil disobedience, but with the intention of escalating our action and building to a state of what I call crisis, creating a crisis or social disruption that involves hundreds, if not thousands, of people who may go to jail as part of that process. And that, you know, we see lots of, you know, we've seen labor unions, we've seen nonprofit organizations embrace civil disobedience, but they really practice more the civil part sometimes than the disobedient part. Because what happens is that a lot of these large organizations that have money and have assets, they become more afraid of what they're risking. They also, a lot of times people believe that the power to change things is based on the relationship at the top for people that are in the opposition. Mm-hmm. 
And relationships are certainly a central part of change. But what I have learned is that it's when we create that popular mandate in the street by creating a level of disruption that can no longer be ignored, that those people in power have no choice but to make a change in order to sort of restabilize in a level of peace. You know, in the labor movement, it's called labor peace. Um, so, so yes, you know, and that's the other thing I would just say, and again, I learned it a lot from my work in Justice for Janitors, where we did engage in what we would call comprehensive campaigns, where there's a legislative strategy and a media strategy and a policy strategy and a regulatory strategy and a community organizing strategy and a legal strategy. You have all these strategies, and they are all important. But when you can take a direct action lens and apply it to each of these strategies, then we get even more power and juice. And so, for example, a, a corporate strategy might be trying to, you know, persuade the people on a board of directors to change a policy. You know, you could write them letters, you could send a petition, but what happens if a group of us go with the policy change that we want and get into their board meeting and sit down and occupy that board table with them and then refuse to leave until they have a serious discussion or they sign this letter? Right, so how do we use creative nonviolent direct action to sort of up the ante on every strategy that we have. You know, again, when we're getting to that level of our organizing, the chances of us really winning something become much greater. It, it seems like you and many others have learned a great deal from from trial and error over the years and the decades, uh, and some things have become easier and some things may be harder. I, I mean, I read about uh, your campaign with Justice for Janitors and shutting down bridges and traffic in D.C. and escalating and creating chaos, and, and you had a particular target in mind uh, in D.C. Uh, that you could persuade, needed to act, or things were going to get worse for him. Uh, I know that in the coming weeks, there are plans, to, including in D.C., to shut down intersections and shut down cities uh, around climate uh, with this sort of vague demand that the world do better uh, about the environment of the world. Uh, and I wonder both uh, how, you, how you come up with a strategy of, of escalation and pressure uh, on something that big, and also how you deal with, uh, with various acts having become felonies, uh, the risk of charges, uh, and with a media that I don't think would make it a national story if you shut down the CIA today, uh, a, a media that has learned to ignore this stuff. How, how, do, you, how do you address campaigns today in, in these circumstances? Mm -hmm. A lot in that question. Um, so let me share a couple different things off the top. Um, I do think that we are an interesting time when we think about strategy. So, yes, my learnings have always been about uh, the first, you know, primary question on strategy is who has the power to decide and how do we influence their world? What are their interests? Uh, how do we engage them? Where do we engage them? Many of the movements today, including Extinction Rebellion that I'm also a part of, are coming out of uh, a different strategic orientation, which has uh, been fueled a lot by the book This is an Uprising, by the the research by Erica Shenowitz that really is talking about, you know, if you can get 3.5% of the population activated and involved, that can get you enough to a tipping point to change government. Um, there are many, the Momentum Training Institute 
has been training a lot of the new movements on this theory of change. And, you know, I, you know, I always believe there's value and merit in everything, but I'm wondering more and more, again, it's like my thinking has been that the, the, um, the more we can pressurize people and companies that are actually doing the harm um, and mapping and doing that the way that is creating social disruption and helping people understand where to put pressure, we can get the best of both worlds. You know, Extinction Rebellion's, you know, strategy has been, you know, we don't need to, like, go after key targets, but we need to create that mass social disruption by, you know, as they did in London, shutting cities down, blocking bridges. Again, and they do have a specific strategy to, like, go after the uh, government and the people in the government to redefine, you know, to basically take significant action to uh, declare climate emergency and then to put in place a change in the economy sort of at the scale that we saw in the U.S. after World War II. So there are definitely some concrete things that people are asking for from the politicians and the government. Right. But I, you know, it's like, I, I, I don't know. I think it's a little bit of both. And, and then just a couple other things on that question. You're right. The media may not cover this right now, but we have social media now. And there are so many more opportunities to get stuff out, uh, you know, globally and quickly. And, you know, at least in Extinction Rebellion, we are working to try and, you know, the media is one of the entities we're trying to move to tell the truth about what's happening in the climate. So, you know, I, I guess, and then one last thing that you asked about this, because it, it factors in and it does make me um, understand that it's a different political time, you know, um, I do believe there's many actions we can take that are not felony actions. But you know, but what we know is that over this last period, there have been um, a lots of new po- protest legislation that has started to move to criminalize our First Amendment activities um, that are often run around the country by the American Legislative Exchange Council, right? They are moving legislative strategies to push back on our First Amendment rights to protest. And there's been two situations recently where people who have been involved in political organizing against particular companies are now getting information that they may be facing legal charges against them or suits. And so when that happened, I thought to myself, well, maybe this is a time where we need to focus more on just generalized social disruption and polarization than going specifically after companies because they're coming back at us. So. I don't ever think there's a right or wrong answer or, or only one way on how we do this, because a lot of times we just don't know. But, you know, the more that we engage strategic tools and research, e- even if it is social disruption, like what are the right bridges? What are the right intersections to be in? And the closer they are to people in power, you know, the more we're going to be able to influence them. So lots of stuff there to think about as we do this work. Uh, very well said, and I think you're absolutely right. Uh, anybody doing good activism is is contributing, um, and uh, I, I I think you may agree with me. One of the things that frustrates me the most is this notion that the most important thing people can do uh, is get out there to vote and register people to vote and be sure to vote and otherwise sit down and bitch and moan about things uh is that is where does where does voting rank in the list of of priorities the electoral work 
Right, um, right. Voting for candidates for government office uh, is very often depicted in, in U.S. media as the one and only thing that people can do. Uh, and it strikes me as one of the many thousands of things people can do and a rather minor one at that. Right. You know, that's a really good question and a complicated question and one that brings up a lot of stuff for me. Because I, you know, again, when I was younger, I spent time working in the system. I did some electoral work and I made a decision that, yes, there was power there, but really the power is in the street. Um, and that's how we're going to move the politicians. So that's where I've dedicated my life. At the same time, David, we live in this, this system with two parties sometimes more parties, but two dominant parties, uh, who does get elected and in office does make a difference uh, in people's lives. It makes very little distance, difference in my mind about sort of the grander scheme of the problems that we're facing. Um, but I definitely understand that it has impact. I also know that, um, you know, people and communities gave their lives for the right to vote. So it's important that we understand that it's, it's a hard-won struggle in this country for people to exercise their political rights through that process. So it's important. What I do know is that, you know, when elections happen, many, much of the money and resources that our movements need disappears, which can come, become destabilizing. And you and I both worked together very much in the anti-war movement. And when Obama was elected, you know, all, we just lost a tremendous amount of support. Oh, I and think it was. I think it was at least a year before Obama was elected. It just dried up. Right, exactly. But it was because of that. Yeah, yes, exactly. For so that reason, yeah, them. yeah. Yep. And that's gonna. And so we know, like, there's a way in which there's a cycle. There's a story. We know what's going to happen when these elections come upon us. The thing that is important to me right now is again, and I need to do more research on my own. That there is some research that shows that political protests in key districts actually helps people move their vote to the right direction, to the candidates that we might want. So one, protesting is still important in this time period. The second thing is that, you know, and so I'm actually hoping that as we go into 2020, we, we escalate our street activity even more because this is such a critical election. So I'm really about, you know, creating that popular mandate to move things in the direction that we need. Now, the other thing I think about on this stuff, and again, this is not the area that I like to work in, but I've also watched over these years that, you know, when it comes to the Democrats, like a large part of our, our base, left center base, it's excited about like a third party or an outside candidate. And then if they don't get the nomination, people get upset and demoralized and just walk away. And, I mean, I, I understand that, and I understand that that might be a base that would not have been activated anyway. But in this particular moment going forward, you know, yes, fight and organize as hard as we can for the best possible candidate. But whoever does get that nomination, I really hope people stay in the organizing fight and see it all the way through to the end. And then I hope they're prepared to take action immediately after the election for whoever gets in to force them to do the right thing. Because part of that story and cycle is if the Democrats get in, the vast majority of our movements say, okay, we don't need to worry about it now, it's all okay, or we can't pressure or push them because then we're going to, you know, support the right wing, you know, give them more ammunition to go against them. 
no, no matter who gets in, we've got to be prepared to keep the pressure on because the stakes of what are happening in this country are just too great that the the fate of humanity and the planet itself are, are I wouldn't say in question, but are in great danger. I, I actually, and you feel free to disagree with me, but I, I actually think uh, that Bernie Sanders is, is better than your average run of Democrats and has been forced to be better by activist pressure uh, and himself says, if I get in there, uh, I, I want more activist pressure to continue. So th- those may be some, some good signs depending uh, what happens. I totally agree with you. There's no question about that. Yes. Um, we, we've got just a, a few minutes left. Uh, Lisa Fithian, uh, this book, Shut It Down, uh, has some wonderful passages about the, the benefits of, of going to jail, uh, how it can be, can be good for you if you've, if you've uh, been somewhat better off than some other people. It can allow you to, to experience some things that make you a better person. Can you talk a little bit about, about reasons other than strategic change that, that people ought to risk arrest? Sure. And I would, well, a couple of things I'll say about that too. Throughout history, uh, people from every walk of life who's been fighting for justice, they're within every movement, there have been people that have been prepared to go to jail. When I'm talking today about people going to jail, a lot of where I focus is trying to get people with white skin privilege to go to jail. Um, I know that black folks, indigenous folks, Latinx folks, queer, trans folks, disabled folks uh, are, take a rest at times. But the risks and the consequences for them are much greater than for white people. And so I am a big advocate of white people being willing to put their body on the line to be arrested. And part of what I have learned is that when you got arrested, you lose some of your privilege. You know, you you just are not free to do whatever you want anymore. And I think it's a really important way for those of us that are white to actually be better able to see the privileges that we have and what it's like not to have those. You know, because we are all socialized in a society that has taught us um, a lot of beliefs about how the world works that are just not true for everybody. And going to jail helps you see not only yourself a little bit better, but it also helps you see how these systems enact violence on black and brown bodies. Uh, And once you see that, you can't unsee it. And so, again, it's like people just get a whole different understanding about what, how this world is really working and the, and the inequity or the difference that it has on people's lives. So, yeah, I'm a big advocate for it, I think. And, I, you know, it's also part of that privilege is that the system uh, privileges us also by listening to us more. And so if a lot of white people are saying no more of this, we're not going to tolerate this anymore, there's a piece of power in that as well. So... Yeah, I just, um, it changes people's lives. When I was in Baltimore the other night, a woman came in who said, you know, I went to the Kavanaugh protest. I thought I was coming to hold a sign. I came across your training on the Capitol lawn. I was inspired. The next thing I knew, I found myself, you know, running to the east steps of the Capitol, occupying the steps, and I got arrested. And she's like, that has changed my life. I I am not the same woman. I am going to keep at this. And her son was with her. And he was like, I am so proud of my mother. You know, so it's like, again, it, it's so, it, 
you don't know what's going to happen until you do it. Uh, and so what I would say is that one of the biggest obstacles is the fear that we carry and the, the fact that we have given up our power because we've been taught to give up our power. We believe we can't do things when you can do things. And so the most important thing is know that you have power, believe in yourself, know that you can do stuff, be willing to take that risk and to do it with other people. Because very, when we take action with other people, we have courage. Very, very well said. The book is Shut It Down by our guest, Lisa Fithian. Lisa, thank you for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you so much, David. It's been a real pleasure. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.